Today we, do, we are going to talk about lust, and uh, our centering scripture this morning comes to us from 1 Corinthians 13, uh, but that is really Paul's love letter to love, and so before we can get there, we need to talk about lust and identify what it is and the problem that it exposes for us. And so to do that, I want to, we don't have to turn to our scripture, I want to summarize though a story that many of us I'm sure have heard before, and this comes to us from 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is the chronicling of the life and times of King David. And we remember King David, right? David, the, the killer and slayer of, of Goliath, the conqueror of the Philistines. He was, oh, hoorah, King David, right? The good guy. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, though, King David, good King David, proves to be imperfect in a big way. And lust is at the center of it. See, King David is, the way the story goes, King David is standing on his rooftop, and he looks out at night, and the moonlight is shining, and he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba as she's getting in her bath. And she's so beautiful, in fact, that he summons her to his bedroom, and they sleep together. And then she goes home, and a few weeks go by, and he receives a note from her informing him that she's pregnant. So David goes about investigating this pregnancy and discovers that her husband, Uriah, has been away stationed as a soldier at his post. And because he's such a good and faithful soldier, he's not abandoned his post that entire time. So there's no way that Uriah is the father, and that leaves only David. And so David does something terrible. He goes to the commanding officer for Uriah, and he says, I want you to put Uriah on the very front lines. And not only that... When you're at the, in the midst of battle, I want everyone else around him to pull back so he is left stranded alone because I know that he's going to die. And that's exactly what happens. And after Uriah is killed in battle, King David sends for Bathsheba and she and the child who is to be born come and live with him. It's a tragic story, a tragic story of a flawed hero in King David and lust is at the center of it. And I want us to begin today defining what lust means for us today. Because lust is one of those words that can mean so many things. That We've been talking about pride and envy and anger. And these are big topics that you could preach many sermons on. But today I want to look at lust specifically through this lens of the King David and Bathsheba story. And what I see this week when I consider the term lust is, is I think it, it, for us what it means is when we see people as objects, when people around us stop being people and they simply are objectified and become objects that we can use to better ourselves. And David objectifies many people in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. He objectifies Bathsheba. All she is is a beautiful woman who he summons to his bedchamber. He objectifies Uriah. All he is is this faithful soldier who he can sacrifice to hide his sin. He objectifies the commanding officer, this loyal servant of the kingdom who's most likely a man of valor and yet being asked and tasked with this terrible thing. He really, in a way, objectifies himself. Because I see in King David's story someone who is so afraid of failing, of being exposed. He, he lacks this trust in the grace of God that he is willing to sacrifice everything, even his own integrity, for the sake of covering up his mistakes. 
Lust is when people around us stop being people and we begin to see them as objects to be used. That's a deep and dangerous sin, my friends. And so what is the better option, right? Because the the problem with lust is that in the moment, it can feel like the right thing to do. King David is doing what he feels like is the right thing to do every step of the way. But of course, it's the wrong decision in the end. And so if lust is not our answer, if pursuing these short-term gains at the expense of the people around us and even ourselves, if that's not the answer, what is? The answer we find this week comes to us from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, his first letter to this church that is recorded in our text. In the 13th chapter in the first verse, we find a set of scriptures that I have to imagine, even if this is your first time in church in your entire life, I bet you've heard these words before. Why? Because I think you've probably been to a wedding. How many of you have ever been to a wedding where the passage from 1 Corinthians 13 has been read? Anybody? That's a good number. How many of you had this scripture read in your own wedding? Big hand up. It's a beautiful passage, but my friends, this passage is about more than just weddings. It so beautifully captures the love that should be shared between husbands and wives. And yet it also is Paul's love letter to a church about how we should love one another as the body of Christ and as individuals pursuing our walk with God. So we're going to read a little and talk a little, read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little this morning as we walk through 1 Corinthians 13 together. And because we'll be reading this in in, in chunks, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and sit down every time, so I'll trust that we're rising in spirit as we hear the word of God proclaimed today. Hear now Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. He says, If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, he says, so as to remove mountains... But do not have love. I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Word of God for the people of God. Let us say. Thanks be to God. God. Let's stop there for now. To understand the power of this section, we need to understand a little bit about Paul and how you build arguments in ancient Greek culture. Some people have a hard time reading the letters of Paul at times because it sounds like he's bragging a lot. Have you ever read the words of Paul and think, wow, you really think highly of yourself? He'll talk about how much faith he has and how good he is at praying and what a great man of God he is. There's one famous passage where he says, if there's any Jew, I'm the most Jewish Jew of all the Jews. I mean, he really lays it out there. And to our 21st century American ears, this can sound Odd because it doesn't have that humility that we expect to hear from people making a statement, but that's because we're not hearing him like ancient Jews or Gentiles would. 
In Paul's day and age, it was very common for debaters to try to wow you with all of their accolades, to boast of their gifts and their talents, all so that their argument would be built on this uh, best image they could provide. The most qualified person was the logic. The most qualified person would clearly have the best argument back in the day. And so in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, this would have been kind of jarring for an ancient listener because they would be expecting Paul to again remind them of his gifts for speaking in tongues or of prophecy, but that's not really what he does at all. Instead, he says that all that he is, everything he is, all of his gifts and his talents, all of his possessions, they would be nothing without love. That's a pretty powerful statement to make. Paul's saying that no matter what we set out to do in this life, no matter what we think it is that we're good at, no matter how many fancy cars we have and how many fancy houses or how much we give all of that away, all of it is worth zilch if love is not at the center. Now, I've seen this on display on a small scale. One time I was at a large gathering, kind of like this, a big debate with some other pastors and church leaders present. And at one point in this debate, this man gets up to speak to bring up a point that had not yet been raised. And he actually had a really good and meaningful point to make. But the only problem was he spoke with this really condescending and mean tone to the body. He even snapped at this person who was trying to help him find his place in our reading materials we had together. And like I said, the point he was trying to make was a really good one, but he was quickly dismissed and his idea voted down. And I think it mostly had to do with how he said what he had to say. You know people like this, right? They're not always wrong. They're just kind of mean about it. But let's be honest, we've all been people like this from time to time as well. The old adage of it's not just what you say, it's how you say it rings true. But I think Paul would take it a step further. He would maybe say, it's not just what you do in life, it's how you do it. And notice that for Paul, this jumped out to me, for Paul, the enemy of love is not necessarily hatred or anger. For Paul, the enemy of love is simply the absence of love. If I have not love, da, 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 da. And that's an important distinction to make. The enemy of love is not hatred, it's apathy. It's the lustful disregard, we could say today, the lustful disregard for the value of others. You just simply don't care. Paul vehemently believes that if we do not care enough to have love at the center of our daily lives, then we're missing something so essential that it threatens to negate everything that we are. Because for Paul, love is essential. But why? I want to ask Paul, why? Why? What is it about this love that makes everything worthless if it's not present? Now, the answer, it seems, comes to us in the type of love that Paul is talking about. We know that Paul wrote this letter in Greek, not in English, right? It didn't get written in the King James Version. English, though, is kind of a funny language when you think about it. In some ways, English can be very precise in a bizarre way. For instance, have you ever heard of the word 
consecutaliophobia. Anybody? Does anybody suffer from consecutaliophobia in the room? It's the fear of chopsticks. The fear of chopsticks, not the fear of utensils, not the fear of small pointy sticks. The fear of chopsticks has a word in English. English can be this bizarrely specific language at times, and yet at other times it can be so frustratingly general. Because we have the word consecutaliophobia, and we have the word love. Love, what a broad word. The English language has such a poor grasp on this concept, I think, because we can use the word love in so many circumstances. I love my wife. I love tacos. I love my daughter. And I love the Dallas Cowboys. I love a sunrise on a lake. I love the sound of meat grilling in my backyard. I love peeling off that plastic film they put on computer and phone screens. And I love my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that silly? That we can use the same word to describe all of those emotions. Imagine if and when aliens come from outer space to visit us for the very first time. We're teaching them English, and we get to the word love, and they ask us, you know, what is love? And we tell them it's kind of like how you feel about your family and your best friends and also sweatpants. <laughs> what? Love is a weird word. But in Greek, the word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 13 is the word agape. Agape, which does not simply mean love in the English sense. Agape refers to the universal, unconditional love that God has for us and that we in turn have for God and for others. This is the love that's been at work since before time began. And it's the love that will reconcile all things back into God in the end. This agape love is the lifeblood of our world. It's the reason for creation, the reason for Christ coming in the flesh, and the reason for God's continued action through the Holy Spirit. And it's this agape love that we share, that we get to share in when we become a vehicle for God's love in the world around us. This is why Paul considers agape love to be so essential to our lives because without it, we ignore the very love that God has for us. David forgot God's love for him. There is a direct and inseparable connection between God's love for us and our love for the people and the world around us. To carelessly objectify others, to lack agape love is to become nothing because agape love is everything. Let us keep reading. <clears throat> Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We'll stop there for now. 
That's a really high standard that Paul is setting for us. You know, my daughter loves balance beams right now. She's three and a half, and anything that she can turn into a balance beam is a balance beam. The, 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 the cement sort of uh, barrier we have over here along the side of the sanctuary, that is the world's longest balance beam in her mind, right? And, and it's so fun watching her weeble wobble, and she's really actually quite good. I think she's better than me, being honest with you. Because I read this passage that Paul has written I begin to read and I hear love is patient. And I picture myself kind of on a balance beam and I go, okay, I, I, I've got patience. Love is kind. I think, okay, I can be kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. And do you feel yourself starting to get a little shaky as you walk that balance beam? Really? Before long, I feel like if I make one wrong step, I'm a terrible person who must not know how to love, who must not have God's love alive in me. And while, yes, this is a high standard to set for agape love, I'm not sure that Paul is saying these things to impose a divine guilt trip on us this morning. I think he lays out this high standard because as Christians, we are called to a high standard. As Methodists, we are called to pursue Christian perfection, being made perfect in God's love. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Church, if you're looking for an easy life, stop trying to be a Christian. There are easier things to do in this life. This is not the life for those seeking the easy path. If you want a faith that's going to tell you that you're perfect exactly the way that you are, this is not the faith for you. Because no, you're not perfect. But you are a child of God, a beloved child of God. And because of God's love for you, a deeper, more disciplined life is possible. This is what Paul is calling us to in his description of agape love. Not guilt trips, not impossible goals. Paul is calling us to a deeper, more disciplined life ignited by agape love. Because love sets a high standard. It must. Living a life of love means choosing to be the bigger person a lot, especially when we don't want to be. It means treating others better than they deserve, giving the benefit of the doubt, turning the other cheek. All of those things that sound nice when Jesus says them, but they turn out to be really demanding when we put them into practice. If we took seriously the call to love that Paul offers in this scripture, we would recognize just how much we need God at work in our lives. I don't know about you, but I get angry, unkind, envious, boastful, arrogant, rude all the time. If that sounds like you at times, say amen. If I'm going to aspire to the kind of love that Paul is inviting me into, I need the power of a God who could walk the narrow path to a cross. And I also need the grace of a Savior who hung on that cross and looked out upon the people killing him and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the good news in this challenge from Paul. Even when we fail, which will be frequent, the same God who calls us to something better is the same God who covers us in grace when we fall. When Paul says that love endures 
all things. I think that includes enduring our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own rock bottom moments in life, trusting that God will raise us back up to step on the balance beam once more. I also want to say this morning that sometimes this scripture can be taken out of context to try and justify staying in relationships that have become abusive or dangerous. People will be told, the Bible says that love endures all things, so that means you need to stay. Friends, that is simply a blatant misuse of God's word. As much as we are, to call, are called to love others, we are also called to love and respect ourselves as beloved children of God. And sometimes love is tough love. So if you're in a toxic relationship, if there is abuse or bullying happening in your life, it's time to end that relationship or to put up healthy boundaries because staying in relationship with toxic or abusive people is not loving. It's destructive for everyone involved. And it's not something that God desires. So let's pick up with the end of this chapter, beginning in verse 8, as Paul closes his thoughts on love. Paul says, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, those tongues he spoke about, they will cease. As for knowledge, all that knowledge I spoke about, it will come to an end, he says. For, now we, for we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Amen. I want to close today telling you about where I've been all week. I have, uh, apologies for my hoarse voice, I have been at junior high camp in Bridgeport, Texas uh, with our Bridgeport Camp and Conference Center. It's uh, the North Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. It's their uh, summer camp spot for uh, kids in the area. And uh, one of my good friends, uh, very best friends, is a clergywoman, and she was directing this past week, and they were a little short on male volunteers, and so she, have you ever heard of being voluntold? Um, <laughs> I got voluntold uh, to be at Bridgeport this past week. And I'll be honest with you, at first I wasn't sure what I was going to find, because if you're like me, you remember junior high all too well, and was that just the best time in your life or What? <laughs> I had acne and braces and an afro and bright yellow converse. I was a hot mess. <laughs> and I've still got the scars and the wounds to show it, right? Kids can be mean. They can be so mean to each other, especially at that age when you're figuring out who you are. You're terrified of stepping out of line. You just want so desperately for people to accept you. So I walked in not sure what I was going to find. First thing I found was a mattress I could feel every spring in. And I thought, oh, Lord, here we go. <laughs> but I'll tell you something incredible. It was a camp full of 217 junior high students. Now imagine that real quick, 217 junior high students. 
And I'm not lying when I say I have never in my life been in an environment of so much love and care and empathy and kindness with junior high students in my life. And we practice that well here at Lover's Lane in our youth ministry. But when you start getting kids from churches, from all different towns, from all different cities, from all different cultures, and you throw them in together in a stew, and you say, well, let's see what happens. You know, I was worried. But I've never been in an environment of so much care and concern and love, just love that these students shared for one another. And that was really captured on Wednesday evening. You know, here at Lover's Lane on our Wednesday evenings, we have a communion service called Renew. It's at 6 o'clock in the ship chapel. And in fact, uh, our trio of musicians who played our prelude, they're there like almost every week. So there's a nice little plug for that. Um, We'd love to see you there. We receive communion as a means of grace on Wednesday nights at Lover's Lane. And at Bridgeport, they received means of grace as well, but theirs was not from communion. It was from a talent show. A talent show. Junior high talent show. We had about 20 different acts sign up, probably about 40 or 50 kids sign up. There were singers. There were dancers. There were um, magic acts. There was a comedy act. There was even one kid who did a Rubik's Cube, like, insanely fast. Um, It was awesome. And the most incredible part of it all was that after every single act, no matter how technically amazing the act was or if, God bless them, they were trying. (laughs) After every act, that room of 217 students erupted in cheers, erupted in claps and celebration. Yes, I mean, if the kid was up there and they were getting kind of nervous, you'd hear them shouting words of encouragement. You can do it. You can do it. You're amazing. No heckling. No rudeness. For two hours straight, these kids just showered each other with love. One girl in particular stuck out to me. Her name is Ava. And she's going into the seventh grade. She was in my small group this past week. And, uh, I mean, seventh grade, is there a more awkward time in life than going into seventh grade? And she'd signed up to sing a song. She was going to sing the song Waving Through a Window from the musical Dear Evan Hansen, which is a really big deal in the teenage community. They love this musical. And this song is about someone asking, basically, do I matter? Does anybody notice me? Like, I'm waving, but is anybody waving back? And she's singing this song, and you you can tell she is so nervous. You can hear it in her voice, the first verse and the chorus. And she's starting to get a little bit more confident as she ends that first chorus. And then there's this musical interlude before the second verse begins. And as soon as she'd stopped singing, all of a sudden, all the kids in the room just started clapping and cheering and yelling, yay, that's awesome. They were all waving back at her, like, with the lyrics. And I watched, guys, I watched a seventh grade girl's self-esteem skyrocket in that moment. I watched a young girl all of a sudden realize that she She was worthy and valuable and that she was a beloved daughter of God and she had gifts and she was amazing. And I saw it happen as these kids were just shouting love at her as she was on the stage, rickety old stage with bright camp lights on her face. You know, scripture tells us that love never ends. Love never ends. This past week, I watched a girl have an experience that she will never forget. 
She will never forget that moment on that stage hearing 217 kids tell her that she was worthy and that she was beautiful and that she was amazing. We have power in this life, my friends. I don't care if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or if you're a street sweeper or something else. The way that we treat people matters. The way that we speak to people matters. The simple act of looking someone in the eyes and letting them know that you see them and you recognize the child of God within them. That is a gift that will never end. And it's a gift our world and the people within it desperately need. Amen.